Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital city is Anna Goodband. Anna is the principal of the Liverpool School of English. LSE is the largest and longest established language school within the city of Liverpool. Um, Anna, good morning. Good morning. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Um, I suppose a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that although we are seeing some green shoots and we're beginning to move out of social restrictions that we've been living under for the best part of 14 months now, we are still somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 situation. So over the last sort of year and a bit, to what extent has it affected you, affected LSE and education at large, would you say? Um, yeah, I think I'd start by going back to last March. Obviously, we had stories coming um, across from other countries around the pandemic and the mysterious disease. And um, we had our marketing team were out busy marketing in February. It's quite a busy time in Latin America. At that time, I was watching the news closely to see how it would impact on us because we work with international students and obviously travel is really important. And we're a, a global business. Um, so we started to look at, with alarm, what was happening and realised that obviously the government was going to have to act. And um, in terms of our industry, it was very much overnight that we had to react to the situation. Um, they announced the lockdown. We had, I think it was just over a week to try and get the majority of our students safely back to their home countries to um, lock down the school and to ensure that the students that were trapped here, that we could look after them in a welfare capacity and also check in with our staff. So, you know, at that time, we were a thriving, very busy school. We had over 70 members of staff and um, we had over 280 students. And, you know, within 10 days, we we had to move on that, deal with it and resolve the travel issues. Um, Unfortunately, there were seven of our students we were unable to travel back to Africa and to Vietnam and they stayed with us um, throughout the pandemic. So we had to check in with them and we set up a virtual common room for all our students because they hadn't had a chance to say goodbye to their classmates or my colleagues. And we also set up um, a drop-in session for teachers and for non-teaching staff um, by setting up a team system within a couple of weeks of lockdown. So we were trying to kind of keep everybody together and communicate effectively whilst working with a variety of um, educational partners across the world, over 80 different agencies in different countries. So it was a really, really busy um, and worrying time for everybody, really. And I suppose having to sort of get used to communicating wholesale via virtual means just for everybody's safety, I guess that almost prompted a kind of change in leadership approach from yourself as well, didn't it? It did. We started looking into sort of blended learning and some of the courses that we offer, for example, like IELTS and OET, about six months before, because we could see in terms of an industry with Brexit, 
that we needed to be a bit more agile and a bit more um, responsive. So we started using um, Zoom platform, but when it came to the pandemic and looking at what we wanted to do for teachers and for students alike, we realised we needed something more structured for us and how you know how that would work for the next sort of six months we sort of thought it may only you know be six months that we were locked down for and so we decided on using teams and what we did so um i sort of taught myself teams by using the microsoft online um, modules and then we set up sessions to teach the teachers and the non-teaching staff teams by setting challenges so i don't know if you've seen grace and perry's art club but in that, there were challenges each week when people were on lockdown. And one of them was a view out of your, out of your window. So we got everybody to do a view out of their window and to post that on Teams and have discussion topics around it, um, recipes. We did the art imitation challenge, which was set up by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, where you, you got your family or your friends or whoever you were living with to imitate um, a famous piece of art. So, for example... My children helped me be the girl with the pearl earrings. So we were setting tasks and we had like a drop-in common room as well for students three times a week. So even though they've gone back home and their, their studies in some cases have been suspended or postponed, we wanted them to feel that we were still there, even though we couldn't teach them. So we sent, we did Friday afternoon quizzes. So in terms of being sort of having to innovate really quickly, you know, it's very true what they say. Necessity is the mother of all invention. And I do appreciate, of course, that this may not be an issue that you've had to deal with specifically at LSE, but what education certainly has done during the pandemic is it has exposed a bit of a digital divide, hasn't it? Because so many people have had to take to remote learning and a great many individuals haven't necessarily had the access to the internet that they've needed to carry out online learning. They maybe not had access to some of the smart devices that they've needed to get onto those resources and when we're talking about technology post-pandemic playing much more of an active part in our day-to-day lives that's going to be something very very important to address moving forwards isn't it yeah i mean i think from my own personal experience i've got two teenage boys who were subject to lockdown and one's got additional needs and um unfortunately uh, there are a large proportion of students within one of my son's um, schools where they didn't have broadband, they didn't have tablets, they only had a mobile phone to use. Um, And obviously not all software platforms are mobile friendly. Um, Also, my other son um, had no live lessons in the first two lockdowns at all. It was all on SharePoint. And I think one of the things that there needs to be more resource and support for all teachers in all sectors around how to deliver live lessons, how to use breakout rooms, how to attach assignments, how to feel confident, having the time and the resource to trial it. Because obviously some teachers that we had who've taught with us for 20 years have never really used that much technology outside the classroom. So we were we were training them remotely to be able to use this equipment and delivering equipment out to teachers' homes to make sure that they had the technology to work with our students who were abroad but it's very true to say that um you know people laughed at jeremy corbyn for saying everyone should have broadband but i think this this pandemic has highlighted that broadband is 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 really quite an essential part of people's day-to-day lives with remote working with remote education 
um, with the pandemic still ongoing, that people need that support and resource to be able to engage effectively with people and to be able to learn and have, you know, measures and, and, and sort of positive outcomes. And it's really put gigabit cable broadband at the forefront of the build back better agenda hasn't it i suppose it, yeah. pre-pandemic there were always plans to sort of accelerate the national rollout of um, such um, of course internet capability but that's even more important now as we've seen and equally important as well is the sort of closing that sort of catch-up deficit that we're seeing with education as well because we've seen so many sort of lessons and people's education put on hold over the course of the last year that getting everybody to essentially catch up to where they should be now is going to be the next challenge for the sector by and large I guess. Yeah and I think it's particularly challenging for the EFL sector because we've got students who are on SDSV visas with specific end dates and you know they've had maybe they've lost face-to-face lessons maybe for two three four five months and are unable to extend their visa in country. So, you know, what they plan to do two years and, you know, if they're self-funding or their family saved up for them to come to do um, an academic English course, IELTS, to, to go to university, that that's really impacted on their future in a, in a massive way. And it's a struggle at the moment to, to kind of move around that in terms of the deficit of learning they've had as international students. I mean, and also, you know, regarding the red list, and the quarantine measures for international students, that's a real challenge for all sort of further and higher education sector providers, I think. And certainly in that instance, I think what would help sector providers in future is a little bit of government flexibility on, of course, international students, because we have to appreciate that they have suffered a great deal over the course of the last few months. Some have actually had to remain in the UK. They've not been able to return home or see their families. and being faced with essentially a cutoff to their education is a, a, bit, a looming problem. So that is something that hopefully there can be a little bit of understanding about. Yeah, I mean, I think English UK, who we are a member of and who is, is, is communicating strongly with the government around, you know, please communicate with us. Like the last lockdown, we, we found that on the Monday. And then the, the people had just returned to, to the country to study with us. And then by the Tuesday, they were online again. Mm. And sort of, um, I understand that, um, you know, with with data, people have to respond quickly, but there does need to be some flexibility and conversation with the powers that be around international student movement, around extending students' day. Um, there was in the first lockdown, but since then, I'm not sure how much flexibility there is around that. Um, and unfortunately, um, over sort of twenty percent of schools within our industry have had to close down in the last year due to lack of sector-specific relief. So those students that have studied there that that need to then go to another school. So there's there's been a lot of disruption around that. And what do you think, if anything, ministers can do to sort of help this sector? when it comes to the recovery because we're not quite out of the woods yet there are still some social restrictions in place and even though we're looking to the future with a bit of optimism there's still a little bit of uncertainty there isn't there so what needs to come now do you think well i think the, the industry is lobbying for extended furlough for efl sector because of the traffic light system uh people were relying on this summer which is like high season we are 
part of the travel industry, we're part of the education industry. We talk to the Department of Health and Social Care around quarantine for young learners. They then pass us on to business innovation. We're not we're not really quite um we're not identified as being part of a specific industry. Mm. So it's very difficult. We we have to sort of we're crossing different departments, for example, the home office, Department of Health and Social Care, business innovation skills. So it would be really good if the government could see that, you know, the the val- the value that, that we we contribute to the economy. Um, and not just the teachers and the non-teaching staff, but the host families, the travel operators, you know, all sorts of people connected within the industry and identify what sector we belong to and how they can support us best. I think that's incredibly important, isn't it? Because we've seen a lot of businesses essentially fall through the cracks when it comes to support over the course of the year, the last 14 months. And moving forward, we need to make sure that that's going to certainly not be the case. And um, it would be, of course, a shame for a vital sector of education, one perhaps that is sometimes overlooked and not necessarily given the attention it deserves to um, sort of be lost among all of these struggles. Um, So over the course of the next sort of 14 months, just before we do wrap things up, Anna, because I'm conscious that our time on the programme is starting to draw to its close, um, what are you hoping is forthcoming for your sector of education and where exactly do you see LSE being this time next year in an ideal world as we, fingers crossed, can leave the pandemic behind? Um, I think in an ideal world, um, the full School of English will still be operating, but I think it will be in a very different way. I don't think we, with international students, will see green shoots recovery um, until Easter. There's been an 80% reduction in student numbers over the last 12 months across the industry, including for ourselves. We have taken this very difficult decision not to run courses in July and August because the majority of our students during that time of short stay so with quarantine rules, it just wouldn't be possible to happen. Um, so we would hope that also the government would listen to the industry regarding um, ID cards being used for juniors for next summer and extending the right of that um, so that we could see juniors that will otherwise, if they have to use a passport, will probably choose to travel to Ireland or Malta. So we are very positive. We are a really resilient industry. We've all worked very hard together. To keep going we're constantly communicating and connecting and we have a weekly catch-up and hopefully you know we, we've got through the worst and the, and the best is to come hopefully so i think there is room for optimism and there is some real hope that there are better days ahead but we have to be cautious about it don't we and i think as we start to um understand as well anna actually exactly what form of recovery we're sort of venturing into and what the picture is going to look like i'd love to actually welcome you back onto the show at some point in the coming months just to catch up on where the sector is at because it is an often unknown corner of education and it does need um far more attention than it is getting I feel yeah well I'd, I'd love to come back on and kind of update everybody as to as to where we are and how how we're getting on that would be great I'd relish that opportunity Anna because I've really enjoyed having you on the program today it's been a real eye-opener for myself and I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment and do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well because as I've said before we're not quite clear of this yet are we 
No, we're not. And thanks for inviting me on to be able and giving me the opportunity to speak about our industry. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Anna Goodban, Principal of the Liverpool School of English, onto the programme today. And here at the Leaders' Council, we enjoy bringing forward a variety of different perspectives on leadership, and we will be keeping it educational next, as our Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, joins us on the programme. He'll be offering his take on the events of the last 14 months, and also his hopes for the weeks ahead. And that will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more 
creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually. Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm. 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not Uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, 
Andy has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.